Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Hey, this is Kion Wolf. I'm here with Betsy Kaplan in your podcast feed saying thanks for tuning in, first of all. And please keep this podcast going by calling 1-800-584-2788 or by going to wnpr.org slash donate. That's the place where you become a member or you renew your membership. And most importantly, you keep us going. And we can't do this without you. Kion and I, along with the, the rest of our team, put on the Colin McEnroe Show every day of the week for you because we love to do this for you and we love the show as well. So give us a call, 1-800-584-2788 or go online at wnpr.org. Enjoy the show. All right, here we go. It's another nose. We're down in New Haven in our beautiful studios, studios in Gateway Community College. Uh, with us uh, in studio are Sam Hattleman, host of the Sam Hattleman Show on WNHH, a Fordham graduate student, and I believe the youngest nose panelist ever, Kara uh, McDonough, a freelance writer. You can read her blog at karamcdonough.com. We'll, we'll put a link to that or something on the webpage. Uh, and Brian Slattery, uh, arts editor for the New Haven Independent and a producer at WNHH Radio, also an author, musician, various other things. Um, all right, so uh, a little bit later on the show, we're going to talk about what I think is fair to call Eddie Murphy's comeback movie. I feel like Eddie Murphy just hasn't really been around, uh, but he's got a really uh, terrific and very interesting uh, movie called Dolomite Is My Name. Uh, we'll tell you more about that in the second segment. Here at the beginning, we're going to tra- traverse some ground that we have tra- traversed a little bit in the past, but never with Martin Scorsese as our guide. Uh, so Martin Scorsese, uh, as he gets ready for the release of uh, his new movie, The Irishman, uh, has been kvetching uh, about the way comic book movies have, particularly Marvel uh, comic universe movies, have invaded movie screens, have taken over uh, the movie theaters. Uh, He compares them to theme parks. He says, that's not cinema. Uh, He does a lot of things to wave a red flag in the face of the bull that is modern Marvel comic entertainment. So we're going to sort of explore that question a little bit, talk a little bit about why uh, Marty would be doing such a thing and whether he has a point or not. So maybe let's start there, though. I mean, I don't know, Brian Slattery, does Marty have a point? It's interesting to to have Martin Scorsese talk about that in particular for sort of two reasons. I mean, I feel like early in his career, he probably would have been accused of the same kind of thing, (laughs) you know, of like taking all of these genre elements that people thought of as lowbrow and, you know, putting them in his movies. And the man loves pop culture. You know, his soundtracks are full of the pop culture of his youth. Um, so it's kind of it's kind of neat to see that like there's a red line for him. You know, <laughs> it turns out there's some aspects of pop culture he thinks are too lowbrow, even for him. You know, like rock music is fine, and uh, you know, th- sexual thrillers are fine, but somehow comic books are are a little too far for him. Um, I don't care. What did you make of this? I, th- I I know that at least initially the phrase "that's not cinema" clanged unpleasantly against your ears. Yeah. I mean, I think that is, you know, that's that's a a thing that a jerk would say, especially someone who makes, quote unquote, <laughs> cinema. I mean, I think I think there's nothing wrong with critiquing 
what's in the box office. And I don't think there's anything wrong with critiquing what the people want. I think that that's fair. I think that saying it's not cinema, that it's not valid, that it's not, that it's overtaking the box office is a different thing to say. I think that's critiquing more what what the population wants. And I think especially for someone like him, I do think it comes across as hypocritical. Um, I think that it's interesting when we were talking about this, a younger version of myself when I was younger and I felt edgier, I might have agreed with him more. I would have been like, yeah, that's not cinema. Where is my art house? You know, where is where is my indie flick? But I've grown up a little and I, I don't really agree with that sentiment anymore. I think that I think what's a more interesting question is why is comic book uh, culture so prominent right now. I think that's the more interesting question. Right, and I want to get at that as we go along here. But Sam, yeah, what was your I think you're concerned whether Marty has grandchildren? <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking to myself like, <laughs> has he ever like seen any movie? But I, I don't know. I, I thought this comment kind of really made sense to me. I mean, when you've made movies like Mean Street and you've kind of taken, you've become this generational messiah basically, and to look at these movies that are somewhat in a way a big cash grab. And not call them cinema. It kind of makes sense to me. Like I can't imagine more Martin Scorsese going to a theater and being like, "Man, let me go see Thor 2. You know, I I, I don't know. I thought that the the comment "it's not cinema" kind of bothered me, but the sentiment totally makes sense. I mean, one thing that I sent around—I don't know if anybody looked at it—it's something that I come back to again and again—is uh, the question of what is mass culture? You know, what is mass culture at the mul- multiplex anyway? So in the 1970s, uh, if you look at the top grossing films of that decade, you've got a lot of movies that take place on a recognizable planet Earth. I mean, sometimes it's a sort of a gimmicky movie like The Sting. Uh, there's Rocky. Uh, but there's also One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, The Godfather, uh, Kramer versus Kramer. Uh, you know, the, these are our movies where no superpower or fantasy element exists. They just, it just sort of happens in the world as we know it. Now, if you look at the top 23 grossing films of this decade, there is not a single movie that falls into that category. Everything is either uh, a Star Wars movie, uh, a comic book movie, uh, an animated uh, movie. That's it. You know, The Hunger Games. uh, er Everything, nothing takes place on recognizable planet Earth. And I do think that's a little dangerous. I mean, I know that a lot of that culture just gravitated over towards streaming channels or, Kara, as you say, to art houses, but to not have any movies in, you know, major movies in the mass culture that address our actual living conditions, it's a little weird, I think. Well, unless you think that they do address our current living conditions. (laughs) Which is a good (laughs) argument. (laughs) There's, so, I I mean, you can, I think you can make a slightly spurious but fun argument that, you know, the, the sort of like realist fiction was really great for the Cold War. It was really great for that era when you know we had this sort of steady economic you know improvement and everything's going kind of okay we're like we're all like kind of worried about nuclear war but not really um you know so there's like a sort of small box life mm. and you know since since 2001 things have been kind of crazy mm. and you know do you really need to see a movie about two people fighting over a divorce how relevant is that you know we have we have much bigger fish to fry at this point and one thing that the superhero things have going for them is that they the stakes are always incredibly high. <laughs> and right. there's a way that you know that can feel like practice for, you know, the, our current global situation in which the stakes feel incredibly high. But you're probably not getting a lot of insights, valuable insights into your own life from Ant-Man. 
Uh, I agree, but then again, like when I was when I was ten, how many how many valuable insights was I getting out of Kramer versus Kramer? Right. <laughs> but Kara, some of that is yeah. also the sense that we are all kids now. We're all being treated like kids, or if we don't want to be treated like kids, we have to go someplace other than the multiplex. Right. Exactly. And I think that that is what some of the, you know, I think that's where the criticism. I guess I get it more that we're all being treated like kids. That this is. I think that Martin Scorsese referred to it, and I, I can't remember if we mentioned this before, but um, as an amusement park instead of a instead of a, a movie experience, and um, and I can get that. And you know, I can also get the idea that because of the big bucks, these movies are in, invading invading the landscape. Um, I just think, you know. I guess I guess I'm a little biased because I, <laughs> I I think I mentioned I didn't really want to watch these movies either, and then when I did, I was totally into them. I was totally I found them fun escapism. I found you know the themes of bravery and like like Brian said, big stakes. I found those I don't know I guess kind of fitting with today's modern landscape of constant news and very 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 real stuff. I'm going to eventually have to wind back to Slattery on this because. But but uh, Sam, so we should say Sam is is a very young man, but he's also kind of an old young man. Uh, he has made a point to understand, like he just cited Mean Streets. He didn't even go to Goodfellas or something. He went all the way back there. So, but uh, you know, one of the weird things for me, Sam, is that so I'm way older than you are, and I grew up in a world where this kind of culture, all of it, science fiction, comic books fantasy was very much the province of a very small slice of humanity. And if you were really interested in that stuff, particularly comic book stuff, you know, there was questions about, there were questions about whether you would be able to date. You know, there were questions (laughs) about to what degree you would be able to participate in mainstream culture. And so it's weird for me that it is mainstream culture. I mean, you know my significant other pretty well. She's not the kind of person who grew up reading comic books. But, you know, she, I mean, she doesn't go to see all of them and stuff like that. But, you know, I think she has to, to a certain degree, a degree like everybody else, say, okay, so this is mainstream culture. You have to watch a certain amount of it. Yeah, and I, I think I, I do. I did grow up in a kind of interesting time where I did grow up with all these Marvel movies, and I was completely enthralled by them by the, at the age of ten. Except for Captain America, that was terrible. I was like completely into them, and I didn't see anything past it. And now that I've gotten older, when I go back to the movies, I kind of try to like peel the layer back and look for the the deeper meaning. And sometimes there isn't one. I think that's kind of the point. As we're all saying, there's just so much going on that it, it gives us this like two hour break from reality. And I think that that's why these movies are kind of uh, thriving, as well as like the CGI keep abilities like we have the ability to it's not like you know pieces of fleece or a puppet like an alien these are like full-blown sets million the most money that probably goes into the movie is into the set so if you have the ability to create these new worlds why wouldn't you right and and some of the best actors too i mean you know mark ruffalo he's got to have like a comic book role so brian i'm wondering like if there's any kind of mixed feelings for you particularly as a guy who writes science fiction too and loves and loves comic books and loves comic books so i mean now you have to share your row in the movie theater (laughs) with football jocks and you know know, popular cheerleader girls you know i'm not really that guy i'm i'm i mean i i'm more like you know welcome it's it's nice of you all to (laughs) it's nice of you all to be here um I think that there – I do think – I mean, we talked about this before, is that I do think that there's um, – the mar- like the the MCU movies feel like introduction to comic book culture. Um, I'm always trying to, like, push people who are into them to then go for, like, the sort of harder 
<laughs> the harder comics. Mm-hmm. You know, the ones that really... You know, it, harder in the sense that they, like, the comic books themselves that do things that other media uh, can't do. Make you think. Yeah, or just that, like, they show you that, like, something about the, something about the like, panels with, with, you know, bubbles when people are talking can be used in a way that that's really pretty unique. And uh, so in that sense, that that's kind of how I feel about it. Like, they... I appreciate the the MCU as a, as like a gateway drug to cooler things. So, I, I get the other question that I have is: Does anybody else feel like they are maxing out? I, I grew up a comic book nerd. I love science fiction, and I'm really looking forward to The Irishman. You know, <laughs> like, I, I, I I've kind of hit a wall here, and I I don't know that this particular genre is able to communicate important messages to me anymore. Uh, and I also back to Brian's initial point about you know growing up in the Cold War or whatever. I feel like I'm living in a time that's really, really interesting in a somewhat scary way. You know, like I want to see the culture that comes out of the moment we're in now, where a presidency appears to be collapsing before our eyes. You know, I want to see the the movies that get made about that more than I want to see, like, how Nick Fury addresses the latest, you know. Well, especially uh, because they're not even the latest. You know, these are like the recycled plots from comics made two decades ago. Right. Well, yeah. we, we kind of saw that with the Joker. I feel like mm-hmm. the Joker was kind of like a cultural commentary. I know we're talking about MCU and that's DC. No, no, no. I think that's a really good point. I'm glad you're bringing it up. <clears throat> yeah, I think like the Joker was kind of a contemporary look at, you know, social justice culture, um, you know, how we deal with mental health, uh, loners. There, there were just like so many topics that are so relevant to our society today. And I think that's why it made the media so uncomfortable. Well, I think also the Joker or Joker was kind of a screw you to certain aspects of the comic book mythos, including the fact that Thomas Wayne it comes across not as this doomed socialite, this tragic figure, but as this kind of obnoxious comic book Trump. Yeah, true comic book Trump, exactly. So, so I don't know. So I don't know, Kara. How are you feeling about Marty now that we've had this conversation? I don't know. I guess I'm. I guess I'm willing to admit that he. I first of all, I think he's allowed to say whatever he wants. I he's mean, Marty. He's, he's he's Martin Scorsese. Um, but I will say that what you were just saying about hitting a wall, I do feel like I think that it, my husband and my son recently were having a discussion about making sure that they didn't know what the end of one of the movies was. And it seemed like it had just come out and they couldn't catch up. And I was like, well, this seems a bit excessive. Right. Maybe there's too many. I, I mean, I say this as somebody who has skipped like fully half of those movies. Yeah. I mean, mostly because I don't need to see them. <laughs> I, I, you know, I just did one of the first conversations that Brian and I ever had, we were first getting to know each other. He was telling me about this book group of books by George R.R. R. Martin, you know, which I was sort of had heard of, but hadn't read or anything oh like that. Oh my God. That was like pre-HBO. Yeah, it was pre-HBO. Oh yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, and now I'm at the end of that, and I couldn't have been a bigger Game of Thrones HBO freak than I was. <laughs> and I look back on it now, and I'm like, what was I thinking? <laughs> what was wrong with me? I would like, the days would inch by so I could see another episode. It just feels like it's, I don't know, wrong somehow. Who wants the last word here? The last word is um, available. I, I, feel yeah, like, we'll I feel like I've almost hit a wall with that Endgame spoiler alert. I feel like I wanted Endgame to be like the Red Wedding. Like, I wanted, they built this up so hard. Their marketing team put so much effort into, like, making it seem like this was going to be, like, the final frontier. All your, like, all your favorite characters were going to die. And then we, like, started off, the we ended the movie with more characters than we started off with. <laughs> like, they, like, like almost, at, almost at every turn in that movie, they could have made some, like, very cinematic choices that would have lent itself for a person like Martin Scorsese to consider it cinema. And instead, they just ended up, you know, making the same lazy choices that have lent us to 23 movies. And I've seen all of them. And yeah. 
Oh, my God. All right. Well, Marty, we can't wait for the Irishman. Uh, we're psyched. All right. So we're going to take a quick break here. Some people are going to ask you. It's the last day of our pledge drive. And we're having a big day. And please join in this big, big day, particularly if you like hearing your friends from New Haven here uh, speaking on the news. Hey, it's Kion Wolf here with Betsy Kaplan taking a second out of your podcast. I know you thought you were totally off the hook from listening to the live fundraising, but we just want to take a second to say thanks for tuning in. And also, please help us keep this coming into your podcast feed. The number to call to be a member or renew your membership is 1-800-584-2788 or wnpr.org slash donate. And you have lots of advantages listening to the show on podcast because we're only going to speak to you for about 20 (laughs) seconds, maybe 50 seconds, Mm -hmm. unlike five minutes. So reward us with the fact that we're speaking to you less time. We're taking less time out of your enjoyment of this great show that you're listening to. Give us some support to keep these shows going, no matter how you listen to them. 1-800-584-2788 or go online at WNPR.org. To the movie within a movie uh, in Dolomite is my name. Uh, that is a, I think kind of, I think it's fair to say. Maybe I'll be contradicted. That would be fine too. But sort of a comeback vehicle for uh, Eddie Murphy. Uh, with us in the studios of New Haven are Sam Haddleman, Cara McDonough, Brian Slattery. Uh, so you should know anyway that uh, Dolomite is being made, has been made by Netflix for Netflix, but it's in limited theatrical release right now. So you can see it in theaters in Connecticut or in a movie theater in New York that annoyed Sam. Um, and he'll tell you, he'd be happy to, he will tell you all about it in just a second here. Um, so uh, let me see if I can set this thing up a little bit. Uh, Eddie Murphy plays uh, a kind of down on his luck entertainer, a guy who's really reduced to working in a Los Angeles record store in the early 1970s. Uh, but he's looking for a way back. And he feels as though, uh, even though he's maybe not in the great, best physical shape, he's put on a few pounds, that uh, he, you know, he feels like, well, he can, he's musical, he can sing, he can dance, and he can do comedy. Um, and he starts borrowing uh, some things from the African-American oral tradition, things uh, that fall into categories like the dozens and stuff like that, this very sort of comical, sometimes um, somewhat risque, rhymed uh, comedy bits. Uh, He starts shopping those things around, uh, and I don't know, he gets bigger and bigger and bigger uh, in various ways until we have a movie career unfolding in front of us. I think I'll stop so I don't spoil anything, although this is based on an actual real person. So um, I just want to go around the room and just see, uh, you know, how did you like it? Sam, we'll get back to the movie theater. You had to see it in, in just a second. <laughs> but how did you like the movie? Uh, I really liked it. I, I uh, told you guys earlier that um, 
for Eddie Murphy, like the nostalgia is kind of dual for me. Like I have this like normal nostalgia of some of my age. Like I obviously, when I was growing up, Eddie Murphy was doing the kids movie Cash Grab, and a lot of the movies I grew up with star Eddie Murphy. You know, notably Daddy Daycare was a huge part. That was like probably like one of the first movies that actually came out that I really liked and remembered. And then I have this like secondary nostalgia of Eddie Murphy, where growing up I'd watch like Coming to America and a lot of other movies I shouldn't have been watching. So to see him come back in this movie in such a different incarnation than I'm used to him and kind of a combination of the both almost like the silly playfulness that he brought in daddy daycare as well as like the the quick style comedy that we saw in older movies it was a really awesome film it kept it was it dragged a little bit it was a little too long but uh, I really enjoyed going to the movie and watching it yeah Kara how about you yeah I totally enjoyed it too um I thought it was such a great fun biopic of Rudy Ray Moore, who I I learned a lot about, obviously, throughout the movie, but then after, too. I love it when a movie, I mean, not to sound like a total nerd, but I love it when a movie makes me learn more about something I, I didn't know about, about a period, about um, about this, this guy, and this movie totally did that. And actually, strangely, unlike probably the rest of you, it made me learn a lot about Eddie Murphy. I, I always knew who he was. He was always in my background, tons of movies coming out um, when I was growing up. But I was never really a huge, huge fan. It wasn't like I was like, oh, this, you know. And so um, I spent some time after the movie. I read a recent interview with him in the New York Times. Um, I talked to my husband, who actually is a huge fan of him, a lot about his career and kind of what you were just talking about, Sam, about the, the cash grab kid movies that came out. And so this kind of this kind of felt like a comeback in the sense that here he is being hilarious and playing a comic. And I thought that that was really neat. Um, but I just thought this was a great movie. One of the things I had mentioned to you guys is that the it didn't go into any parts of a movie that can feel um, sometimes more serious. There wasn't a big romance in this movie. There wasn't a ton of drug use. There wasn't anything that felt so sobering that you couldn't just have a really good time watching it. Brian? So Brian has been sending us really interesting emails about this. <laughs> we probably publish at some point. But anyway, yeah. Well, there, I mean, it's basically to, like, back up what with both – uh, Sam and Kara said it's really it's really fun it's actually my it's probably my favorite Eddie Murphy movie and I like a lot of Eddie Murphy's movies um, for me I think that the the most fun part of the movie was the early part of the movie when he's figuring out his shtick I think when it when it hits the thing where he's like let's make a movie I felt like I'd seen that movie before I enjoyed it but the the first half of the movie when he's doing the um when he's developing this character that's based on this, this oral tradition, I thought it was totally fascinating. It actually went really deep. You know, it's it made the sort of connections between um, Rudy Ray Moore himself is a connection between like the music that preceded him and hip hop. He's a he's a considered to be a hip hop pioneer at this point. And this movie kind of showed you how he put together the DNA <laughs> for, like, how he was part of the DNA for this genre that was going to flower just a couple of years after the action in the movie ends. And um, to me, the, like, the evocations of the, like, the, the Chitlin circuit, um, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't have been called that when he was on it. But it was, you know, a, a series of clubs in the South that, that black musicians could go to. And could build their careers on, and it launched it launched the career of virtually every black musician in the fifties and sixties, maybe even before that. But it's that whole that whole uh, that whole era felt very 
educational and informative, as well as being just really fascinating to watch. Right. So we're going to just play a little clip here that uh, follows perfectly from what Brian is saying. Uh, this is a scene in which he um, meets Rudy Ray Moore, the character played by Eddie Murphy, is on that Chitlin circuit. Uh, he His character, Dolomite, is... Uh, you know, sort of projects as a pimp. You know, he's got uh, all of the the various accoutrements thereof. Uh, and he meets um, a uh, plus-sized woman uh, at the bar. Uh, she's known as Lady Reed. She's played by Divide, Divine Joy Randolph. And he sees something in her, and he uh, approaches her not for a liaison purposes, but to sort of find out what she's made of uh, in terms of being an entertainer. You've been up on stage, Lady Reed. I used to be a backup singer in New Orleans. I knew it. I told you. Uh-huh. You sure do. Singer, huh? I get so nervous I had to hang on to the mic from not falling over. <laughs> Butterflies all in my stomach. <laughs> <laughs> You're funny. You should be doing stand-up. But what, what would I do? I'm not really no pimp. I ain't got no stable of hoes. I just created a character. I do it all the time. I've been Prince Dumas. I've been the Harlem Hillbilly. And tonight, look at this here. <clears throat> just, just tug on Tug on this? Mm-hmm. Just to give a little tug. Just a little. Don't tug too hard. Don't take the off. Oh, that's a yeah, That's right. It's all pretend. You put on a cape and turn into a superhero. Leave the real you behind. Go on stage. And... Magic, huh? <laughs> and I, I think... You know, um, Sam, as that clip suggests, although this is a very, very funny movie and a very uh, a movie that's very s- satisfying at the level of hilarity, there's also a lot going on here that that isn't just simply. I mean, this isn't The Hangover. You know, <laughs> this is a movie about real people trying to do something w- different with their lives. Um, yeah, I, I, you know what? I I was thinking about the music aspect of it for a while, and when I went in there, I was like, oh, this is kind of the formula of how hip-hop en- ended up being. Like, a lot of the the raps, I guess, that he came up with kind of reminded me of, like, Busta Rhymes or, like, Future, like, something like that. Like, totally. And I could totally see how we went from there to now, and I think that was a really cool history lesson for me. But I also think it was a movie with a lot of heart, and yes, it was, like, kind of, like, a movie about a movie that didn't really seem like a movie, and it reminded me a lot of the movie about The Room that James Franco made or Dewey Cox, uh, Walk, uh, Walk Hard. And I don't know. I think it had like a lot of different elements to it. And the heartfeltness kind of came from Eddie Murphy, which I, I was talking about earlier. And I think he kind of learned that from the from the kids movies. And it kind of had that element to it almost, almost like a childlike innocence to Eddie Murphy's character, even though what he's saying is so vulgar. We should talk a little bit about Eddie Murphy as well. Um he is, I mean, for some reason or other, which I don't entirely understand, and maybe that article that you read, Kara, helps us understand it, but he kind of hasn't been top of mind for a while. But this seems to be a year. He's just on uh, Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee. This summer he's hosting Saturday Night Live, coming back there in December. He's doing some stand-up specials for Netflix. They're currently film, filming Coming to America, in other words, part two of Coming to America. So... There's sort of a lot going on here with this guy, and I, I find myself watching him and enjoying him so much and thinking, why hasn't he just sort of been part of my life for a while? <laughs> yeah. Well, in the article, which was in the New York Times, it was really recent, so if you if you Google it, you'll, you'll find it. It's I think a Jason it's- Zinneman interview. Yes. So I, I read that today, and um, it was fascinating because Eddie Murphy sort of made the case for why he's coming back, and it seemed totally 
practical. He was like, I want to do this. One of the things he said is that he wanted to do this movie and be really funny in people's minds again before he came back and did SNL and um, before he recorded a new stand-up special, which apparently is in the works. And I thought that was really interesting. He really... um, you know, laid out sort of a practical game plan for how he's, I mean, he never really went away, but, but he did, um, he did start doing things that weren't, I think that weren't what his, his, his true fans really knew him for the hilarious stand up, the more edgy comedy. I mean, and Brian, this is sort of the movie's kind of a reminder that he can do a lot of things. I mean, for this movie to work, it's got to work a couple of different ways. I think, you know, he's, well, you, you, you take that and run with it. Yeah, I mean, I I actually kind of like this move a lot when someone because I I thought of this movie as actually a drama about a very funny person, so it was yeah. it was really That's a good point, yeah. like it was really important that that whoever they picked to play this guy needed to be able to be funny. But the movie isn't actually trying to be funny; it's really just kind of like a biopic about this guy. I mean, so it, so it to me the revelation was seeing Eddie Murphy playing drama. Like in the scene that we saw there, like he wasn't being funny. He was being very tender and he was being very friendly and but not just sort of clowning around. Like like I think a lot of people associate him with sort of physical comedy or being like the wildest person in the room in some of the movies that he does. But that's not really what he was doing here. And it was very cool to <laughs> to see that yeah, that that's that he's he's much more versatile than I think a lot of people have given him credit for, including me. All right, uh, let's give you a little uh, sense of this. So uh, you're going to hear a scene between Eddie Murphy uh, and another pretty well-known performer, Keegan-Michael Key. We'll get to Wesley Snipes, or at least talking about Wesley Snipes in just a second. But Keegan-Michael Key plays a guy named Jerry Jones, who is uh, not out of the raw and raunchy uh, comedy tradition uh, of Rudy Ray Moore. He's instead a guy who's obviously trying to make it as a serious playwright, writing plays about the human condition, the kind, writing the kind of material that Marty Scorsese wishes would get up on the screen uh, at multiple plexes once in a while uh, and so he but uh, but Rudy Ray Moore needs a playwright he needs somebody to write the screenplay so they are trying to kind of work out things between them and and I think uh, Keegan-Michael Key's character starts to wonder who he has gotten involved in we want this thing to be raw tell it like it is on the streets yeah lots of pimps and hoes and cussing and kung fu and karate brothers love all that kung fu and karate do you know karate no but I'm a fast learner I can learn how to chop me a mother yeah you know what we should have? A all-girl kung fu army. Um, you know, there's there's plenty of story opportunity, Rudy. Across this nation, inner cities are being plagued by violent crime. I I feel the government hasn't stepped up. That's it. It's Whitey's fault. The mayor's corrupt, and there's an exorcism. God damn it! An exorcism? Yeah, you know all that. Who? My mother's in hell. Um. I don't know how that fits into our urban uh, motif. All right, so that's a, a little bit of that. And, you know, I think, Sam, you can hear the point that Brian's making there, too. He's being really, really funny. And and almost, in, as Jonathan McPants, our producer, says, there's almost something a little childlike about him, too, right? You know, he's just sort of spitting out all these fantasies. And I think when he says, all-girl kung fu army, we're all in, right? Okay. <laughs> you, you had me at all-girl yeah. kung fu army. That's what it yeah, took I, to get I, there. I, it, it, it was kind of, no, I was thinking the same thing, but you put it into context. It really wasn't a comedy. It was just a funny drama, like a drama like succession like it's like it it was like 
the movie wasn't really meant to be funny. It really told like a very serious tale about a very funny guy, and I think that's what lent itself to have that childlike uh, humor to it. But he didn't. You're right. He didn't really go for that raunchy, over the top Eddie Murphy that we knew in the past. He really wanted to solidify himself as this like like oh Eddie Murphy's old, but he can still be funny. And to your point that you said that he wanted to come back with the movie first, I think that's a really good play because I didn't really like when Chappelle just came back with three Netflix specials. I wish he had kind of eased into it so we could have known like, oh, Dave Chappelle's old, grumpy, but still kind of funny sometimes. Like it's nice to ease into Eddie Murphy. Right. Um, we should say a little something about Wesley Snipes, who's another person who's kind of disappeared <laughs> from view for a while. Now, he has some very well-documented tax problems um, <laughs> and uh, – well, he just does. Yeah. And, and so here he's we don't have a clip, but he's he's this rather I don't know, Kara, how would we describe he's the, he winds up being the director of the movie in question. It's hard to actually find a way to describe who Wesley Snipes's character presents himself. It's a very mannered uh, performance, intentionally so. Yeah. Mannered is the perfect word. Um, I mean, he's sort of a strangely flamboyant. You don't know what's going on with the sexuality type <laughs> of constrained but emotional um, director. And he, I mean, the performance was so interesting. He's not a, um, the performance was extremely likable, although his character, I wouldn't say, ha- you know, he not totally likable character. He's, um, he's kind of in it for the fame. Um, but but I, I was also wondering when I was watching this where Wesley Snipes went. I realized I hadn't seen him in a, a really long time. And it was a delight to see him. And I also want to say that the rest of the the rest of the um the cast, Craig Robinson and um everybody else, just completely delightful performances. I was I yeah, just found uniformly so uniformly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> uniformly delightful. I was so impressed with all of them. Um the actress who played Lady Reed, I I loved her. I loved her storyline. And some of the storyline was really simplistic. I mean everyone was just a very much a character. Um it, there wasn't a lot of, of depth to some of the storyline, but it was, like everyone is saying, this childlike. I think that's that's the word I've been looking for while trying to explain why it was so enjoyable. It was really a movie about perseverance, uh, just in the face of what you wanted to do. It wasn't even perseverance for a higher cause. I mean, what he was doing was really raunchy. It was, <laughs> he but just great. wanted he wanted to but do what great. he wanted to do. It was great. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was thrilled to see, I believe his name is Titus Barras uh, yes. for him, yes. from yeah. Kimmy Schmidt. Love that guy. Uh, I, I've been yeah. wondering what where he's going to turn up because he's so fabulous in Kimmy Schmidt. Yes. And there he doesn't have a lot to do, but he does a lot of acting with his face and his eyes. <laughs> He's really uh, and and he does it, does it very well. Okay, so there's another part to all this, and I, first of all, I, I would say. I would like to say that I am thrilled to have these three people in the room with us. But uh, to be honest with you, we really tried hard to get one of our African-American panelists. Uh, that would have been good. Least. Yeah, that would have been <laughs> nice. And, and, and Mercy couldn't do it. And Sean Murray's not around anymore. And We're we doing the best we can. We're doing the best we can. But So I'll just t- quickly tell a story. So maybe I'll be the person who, who says this. So um, not to – this the movie within the movie came out in 1975, uh, the first Dolomite movie. So um, right around that time, I was – going to school here in New Haven. And I went to see, I think, the second Dirty Harry movie. I'm not sure. It wasn't the first one anyway. Or maybe it was a Dirty Harry double feature or something. And I went to see it in what is described, actually, in this Dolomite movie uh, as the kind of beautiful movie palace that uh, existed in, in, you know, in many cities, or all cities around America. It had a whole bunch of beautiful old movie uh, palaces. And that as people, as white audiences moved out to the suburbs and started going to multiplexes 
palaces and stuff like that. These often became movies where movie palaces where you might see a black exploitation movie or a certain kind of action movie, um, and you would see it with a mostly black audience. So I saw, I think maybe two Dirty Harry movies with an almost entirely black audience. And they were just having a very different relationship with Dirty Harry than I think white audiences were. And they were finding some things very funny about this that, you know, I don't think were necessarily intended to be funny. And they were kind of keeping up a little running commentary back and forth with the screen. And I was just completely knocked out. I mean, one there was one guy in the audience who a couple of times said things where the entire movie theater started roaring with laughter. Um, and, and I just realized, you know, there is uh, a way in which sometimes we watch things differently. Different cultures watch things differently. And I do think one of the things you see here is a movie, the, the Dolomite movie that gets made. It's not an artistic masterpiece, but it's a movie that can be a party movie, a movie that people can have a party at, a movie that people can have fun with. And I was sort of excited to see that also shown on yes. the screen. Yeah, and I think that was the big issue with where I saw it, which I told you guys about <laughs> earlier. Is that, like, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just give it like a really quick. I like literally chomped everyone's ear off at the beginning, but I had to go to this really fancy movie theater, like one of those like new age gentrification plus, like one of those like really really fun places. And you had to buy like a pod. Like none of my friends would go with me. I was like, "You guys want to go see this movie?" And they're like, "Yeah, sure, yeah, I would love to go see a movie with you." And then they saw where it was at, and they were like, "No, I am not going there. I cannot afford that." And I'm like, "Where am I going? The Dubai of movie theaters? Like why? Why can no one go with me?" So the bathroom was on a completely different floor than the movie theater. I didn't know where to buy popcorn. It was it was just terrible. And but it was nice. You know what the best part about it was that there was an old guy sitting next to me. And my favorite thing in the movies is when me and the oldest person in the theater are laughing at the same thing. That's how I know <laughs> yeah. something's genuinely funny. But yeah, I think context and where you see the movie is a big part of it too. Yeah. yeah. Did you want to have a last word about that, Brian? <laughs> or it's unfortunately it's a twenty minute conversation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but to boil it down, I mean, I I think it's I think it's really cool that somebody made a movie that really kind of talked about the the divide between like the black entertainment world and the white entertainment world, um, which was I, possibly as divided as it was going as it's been <laughs> at the time that, that Rudy Ray Moore is making his movies. But it also gets you thinking about like how it's divided now. I mean that now that we don't have like this kind of center of gravity, um, I think that those that those barriers are still quite firmly in place, and um, hopefully this movie will do something to kind of in- encourage white audiences to look over that divide more often. All right, let's take a little break here. Um, I think we're all encouraging you to see the movie. It's going to be on Netflix starting October 25th, or you can go see it in a movie theater. Go see the one. Go to the movie theater where Sam paid $82 uh, for his seat and some popcorn, uh, or go to any movie theater that's showing it. Anyway, it's uh, Dolomite is my name. All right, we're back with Sam Hadleman, Kara McDonough, Brian Slattery. We're here in the New Haven studios. Uh, let me quickly tell you that next week we're doing something pretty unusual for us. I mean, because, you know, it's kind of hard to ask people. It's hard enough to make people go to a movie theater and see something, but uh, to read a book for our show is kind of hard. But we're at, we are doing the new Stephen King book. Uh, three panelists and I have uh, read the book. We'll be talking about that. Uh, we hope that you make a point uh, of listening. Uh, this uh, show today, I think it's just Jonathan McPants and me. I think we're the people who worked on it. Betsy Kaplan, uh, 
uh, she recorded the billboard. So, and on Monday, we are going to be talking about the impeachment. We're hoping to get Ross Garber. Ross Garber, who has started out here in Connecticut, is maybe the nation's leading expert on impeachment uh, because he's handled so many cases. So we're hoping Ross will come back and join us. Uh, all right, so time to make some recommendations. Uh, what have you got for us, Brian? So if you see Dolomite is my name and you really like the raunchy um, music at the very beginning of it, um, the tradition to plug into you there would be it's it's a long tradition, but the the couple of names would be um, there's an album by by a band called Snatch and the Poontangs, um, not their not even the real band's real name. Um, used to be very hard to find. Now is a Google search away, um, and a singer from 19, 1930s named Lucille Bogan. And then for something a little more modern, there's a delightful album that R.L. Burnside made with a band called the John Spencer Blues Explosion called A Ass Pocket of Whiskey. Um, <laughs> that's, yeah. And all, all three of those things are among my favorite things to listen to. All right. <laughs> Good recommendations. You want to be uh, musically rich and ready uh, for uh, Dolomite. Karen McDonough, what have you got for us? So my endorsement is pretty pretty far from what we've been discussing today. But I, um, just after the Emmys and everyone in my life telling me to finally watch the British series Fleabag, although I'm actually a couple away from the end. Um, and I love it. I, I love it. I, I also want to say that I watched it by myself. I watch a lot of things with my husband, which is lovely, but he was away for a conference and I decided I was just going to watch as many as possible. And I think the experience of watching it by myself, the wonderful Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who's the star of it, has a relationship with the viewer that is very unique in the show. And I felt like I was having this amazing relationship with her. Um, and it's it's just a a great, extremely unusual show, extremely touching, and hilariously funny, and I highly recommend it as lo- as well as all of your friends, I'm sure, because ab- about you know forty of mine told me to watch it before right. I finally we, did. I should say that we sort of missed it the first time around on the nose, and we've been talking ever since about. It. Should we just come back and do it and talk about it on the nose? We still haven't decided. Sam, uh, you kind of stole mine. I, oh actually, man! No, no, but but <laughs> actually, I, I was going to recommend Phoebe Waller Bridge's other show, Killing Eve, with Sandra O. Oh, because I watched Fleabag at first, because I don't watch TV. I stopped watching TV in college, so like Fleabag's like the first show that's like running now that I'm coming back to, and I was on the floor. It was so funny. So I s- decided to watch Killing Eve. Um, it's a kind of like a assassin murder mystery love story, but it's really well done. I really like it. And my second recommendation is You Know What I'm Saying by Danny Brown. It's kind of like an older adult contemporary hip hop album. I really enjoyed it. The entire thing's executively produced by Tribe Called Quest Q Tip, and it's a pretty fun album to listen to. Um, I thought I would try to endorse a, an Eddie Murphy movie uh, that I think should be much more part of the American comedy canon. It's the movie Bowfinger, which he made with Steve Martin. Eddie Murphy in this plays two different roles. He really plays three different roles because one of his roles is as a movie star who has a very sort of macho persona but is a mess inside. It has a pretty hilarious uh, uh, send-up of Scientology in it, too. Uh, I won't say too much more, except that it's a really, really funny movie, and I'm, I, I just feel like it should be you know on that list of indispensable American comedies, and I sense it is not. So anybody who watches Bowfinger will, I think, come away happier, and you will have laughed. And then for Wesley Snipes, we were discussing Wesley. So I'm going to recommend Demolition Man. Uh, Demolition Man, which is <laughs> Sylvester Stallone, Wesley Snipes movie, also featuring Dennis Leary and as cops in the future. All takes place in the future. Uh, the cops are Sandra Bullock and Benjamin Bratt. It takes place in a highly sanitized uh, future where smoking, drinking, 
swearing, everything like that has been outlawed. Uh, and then this cryogenically frozen villain, played by Wesley Snipes, uh, gets thawed out. And the only way to cope with him is to thaw out the guy who brought him down in the first place, Sylvester Stallone. And I'm not saying that this is any kind of cinematic masterpiece. I don't know what Marty Scorsese <laughs> would think about it. But it's a great Wesley Snipes movie. It's actually a really great Stallone movie. He's extremely funny in it. I always think Stallone's ability to do comedy is a little bit underrated. All right. Thanks so much to uh, this crew here in New Haven. Sam Haddleman, Kara McDonough, Brian Slattery. Thanks to Jonathan McPants. Thanks to you for listening. And if you could be so kind as to support what we do here when these people come on to ask you, well, that would be even better. <laughs> <laughs>